Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. The real us is no match for the legends. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian, also known as Cosmos. And joining us today, our very first guest. That's me. I'm Sam. Last name Sheen, and I'm really happy to be here, guys. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on the pod. Absolutely, Sam. Thanks for joining us. Our spoiler warning for today and for every episode, everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. But actually, I kind of lied, as Sam, our guest here, has only just played Metal Gear Solid, the first one, and not the rest. Uh, we are going to kind of keep it mum on spoilers beyond the first game, except for maybe some of the larger things captured in the zeitgeist. But prior to uh, getting to our buddy Sam here, we did get some feedback from listeners. Um, you know, they emailed us in at podcastsansfrontieras at gmail.com. And our first email is actually from someone who played it back in 1998. Uh, so let's start there. Uh, Josh Michielli writes us, I did play it when it was first released. I had only ever played Snake's Revenge before that, and the controls were so wonky in that game, I never put much time into it. But I also remember the hype surrounding MGS. All the magazine features, covers, it was clearly a big deal. I probably got the game for Christmas. My neighbor and I would trade games and see how far the other could get. He was a bit of a savant when it comes to gaming, so he was all, always able to get further than I did. I remember specifically one of the challenges we came up with, trying to take out Sniper Wolf without using Diazepam. Later, he told me he played through without killing anyone. He clearly was ahead of the curve, as I always thought that sounded nuts and was way too difficult to be fun. I know I played the game through several times and really enjoyed it. It was clear it was an exceptional game because war games, quote-unquote, were never my primary interest. They still aren't. I've never played a Call of Duty or anything similar. The only FPS I've ever enjoyed was Metroid Prime. But this was something else. The game had this way of drawing you into its story, even though most of it was admittedly over my 18-year-old head. I was instantly a fan of a franchise that for some reason now seemed way bigger than it probably was at the time. I bought a PS2 after the announcement of MGS2 because I knew I had to play it based on the strength of MGS. How that experience turned out is the subject of another email, but the point was I wanted more. Digging the podcast, guys. It's been a lot of fun so far. Thank you very much. Josh, curtsy while you tweet. Um, while those are ominous words on MGS2, uh, I pretty much feel the same way about the build-up to MGS and how it felt playing it. And I also have a disconnect to uh, the first-person shooter genre, except for Halo and maybe GoldenEye and Perfect Dark, which kind of predate the dominance of the first-person shooter. But I understand buying the PlayStation 2 on the promise of Metal Gear Solid 2 alone, because I basically bought every generation of PlayStation for the promise of the next Metal Gear title. Uh, so I'm right there with you josh that's i'm not because i didn't play metal gear solid 3 till 2007 so i was kind of already behind those releases but yeah i uh i did buy a secondhand ps3 solely to beat mgs4 like six or seven years ago which i definitely don't regret at all <laughs> i mean i know i i paid 40 dollars for it so i actually don't it was fine oh that's good yeah and then one last uh piece of feedback we got 
last episode, when talking about Decoy Octopus, we talked about various origins of his name or why he might have been given the name Octopus. Uh, one of my friends online, uh, at Jared Bertley on Twitter, sent me some information about this journalist named Danny Casolaro, who was investigating a criminal network back during the Reagan era that involved software companies, governments, banks, and possibly had a major effect on Reagan era policy. This network that he was investigating, he had dubbed the Octopus. In 1991, Casolaro was found dead under mysterious circumstances. His It was ruled officially a suicide, but the family disputed this and there were there was forensic evidence that pointed to possible murder in the situation, and he was believed to have been murdered after receiving some critical information related to his investigation into this octopus network. So massive conspiracy cover-ups, a secret cabal of power brokers behind it all, a strange death that defies explanation. I can understand Kojima thinking about this or having octopus on the brain when he was writing Metal Gear Solid as it was a big part of that kind of intelligence news uh, during the early and mid-90s. I love having octopus on the brain. Uh, I also love eating it. (laughs) But uh, now we want to kind of open up the floor to our guest, Sam, who is, you know, again, very thankful to have him on this time. So Sam just played Metal Gear Solid for the first time within the last couple of months. I'll let him give those details. Uh, So Sam, do you want to take it away? Maybe tell us a little bit about what you knew about Metal Gear Solid coming in, why now is a good time to play it, and also your experience with uh, Death Stranding, which you had played prior to Metal Gear Solid. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's kind of it. Like I, one of my best friends um, is a huge Metal Gear Solid fan. So like just being adjacent to him and just being adjacent to like video games in general, um, I've always, you know, I, I've picked up a lot of, I guess I'll say I knew what to expect going into Metal Gear Solid because I have, you know, knew about the exclamation marks and the, you know, the, the, the alert function. And, you know, I knew it was a stealth game and tactical. So what kind of with, you know, COVID going on and everything, I've been trying to like circle back to a lot of these like franchises that I've like missed the boat on, or I've never really explored that are like, you know, big and important, you know, Final Fantasy, um, you know, Dragon Quest, Devil May Cry and, you know, Yakuza, Trails in the Sky, some of these big, long franchises that I never really had a chance to play through. And I had actually played Death Stranding um, two years ago, and I really loved it. Like, I really loved it, um, which was not everyone's experience with the game. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I'm, I guess I'm a little bit of a freak when it comes to video games, because I don't, while I do think that gameplay and things like that are important, I don't necessarily see video games as less i think they're less about killing time for me than they are about um being a superior story medium um that's kind of how i view video games and i I know it's not how a lot of people view them but i think that there's a something to having a level of interactivity that can help you make uh, a narrative experience better than you know you can in like other mediums like you know um books, uh, you know, TV shows, movies, that type of stuff. And so, you know, I've, for example, I really like some of my favorite games are like Danganronpa or Persona 3. Um, I really like like Life is Strange, Firewatch, these games that are very narrative driven and are more about like 
you know, an idea or something like that. And for that reason, that's one of the reasons Metal Gear has always been something at the top of my list when it comes to circling back to, you know, play something, even if it's all these years later, because I it was my understanding that that was what the games, you know, the games were sort of famous for. And, you know, after playing Death Stranding, I was like, okay, this the guy who made this is very much, <laughs> I vibe with him in a big way, I'd like to see like what his early work was like um, in particular. So that's kind of what brought me back to it in the first place. Yeah, I think you highlight something really key there is that the games you're mentioning and then Metal Gear Solid, as we've been talking about, are its active engagement with the narrative of a video game. Whereas a lot of other games, like they may have, you know, an elaborate narrative with you know, a really deep story with themes and all that. But in the end, you're basically, it's one track narrative. It's not at all engaging with the fact that video games are interactive and allows you to have multiple outcomes or go down different paths. And it's becoming more common now, especially with some of these uh, bigger RPG games. But it's definitely trying to, you know, I would consider like books and movies as kind of like passive narratives, whereas you're just enjoying them. Right. Um, you're creating mem- memories out of it, but it's not taking full advantage of the medium the way that some of the games you mentioned and Metal Gear Solid and Death Stranding surely are. A lot of games that quote unquote have great stories aren't even like particularly good stories. It's just the act of experiencing it like actively makes it stand out more, I feel like. Right. No, exactly. Like, and just, just having an idea, and I, I think that that's what. I mean, I'll, I'll just get to get to my big, my big point here. What, what really blew me away about Metal Gear Solid was that, while in so many ways it is, you know, big, dumb, stupid, um, tactical, you know, story, pseudo Tom Clancy, like you know, everyone speaks in acronyms all the time. Right, exactly. There's acronyms everywhere. Like it's all fetishization of like, uh, you know, uh, not 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 as much in Metal Gear Solid, but it's definitely there. There's like a a pseudo fetishization of you know military action and stuff like that. But underneath that, and you know, more imperative, I think, to Kojima's work and something that's much more of a through line for him based on what I've seen is just, he's clearly, I really do believe he's like a real auteur. Like he's a very, very, very thoughtful guy. And I like, like he clearly thinks about this stuff a lot. I think he has like almost a superhuman ability to, even though, you know, he is framing it in this dumb context of like Western, you know, there's this, uh, tactical guy and he's going to save the world from t- nukes and terrorists. This is like John McClane. At the same time, he's also underneath interweaving some really interesting ideas about like loneliness and, you know, being complicit and like where well, personal responsibility comes into being an active member of an empire. And to the point where I'm not even really sure how aware he is of it. <laughs> But that's just kind of what he is like to me as like a genius. Like, and I, he did this with like with different themes in Death Stranding, but it was like a very similar, there's a canny ability um, on his part to like, you know, sort of tease this stuff out, even in the confines of, you know, a story like that. Yeah. Like next week, when we talk about the themes, when we kind of wrap up our discussion of Metal Gear Solid, I'm going to spend a significant amount of time just talking about the setting of Alaska and an island on the Fox Archipelago, because just 
a simple choice by Alaska. I don't know how conscious Kojima was of all the history of Alaska, but when you think about how it ties into imperialism in the Pacific theater, how it ties into oil, um, we actually purchased it from Russia. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff, even uh, Vulcan and uh, Snake uh, during their boss encounter in the uh, storage freezer, uh, they talk about how they may have shared blood from the West because Vulcan was Inuit and he crossed, you know, the Inuits crossed over over the Alaskan land bridge. Um, I'm going to save all that for next week, but it seems like all these choices that go into the game, something as simple as the setting or where things are happening, they reveal themselves to be that much more. And, you know, through the codex and through the story, you see that there's there was research done into what's going on in Alaska at the time. What's the culture like there? What's the culture for the Inuit people? And that's just one example of how there's a lot layered there, whether Kojima is consciously doing it or not. Just by making these thoughtful choices, he opens his work up to these kind of discussions and interpretations. Yeah, no, I I mean, like, I, I was like so much of like the way that the game unfolds, you know, like um, it, it is so narrative, you know, driven. There's a lot of exposition, uh, which is something you see a lot more in like Japanese developed games. Like they're, they're just, you know, it's there, there is like a tends to be more exposition than there is in like Western games. But I think it really works, especially in Metal Gear with, you know, the codex and every, you know, using those as a narrative device, because it also you know, you're you're with Snake as he's sort of, you know, figuring out what's going on. And there is a, a sense, uh, what I think Metal Gear Solid does capture well, um, is sort of the sense of what it's like to realize that you're not necessarily, you know, that there's there's no good guys, I guess, is what it is. It's a game that's like riddled with betrayals, you know, all the way going up to, you know, Fox die and the ultimate, you know, culmination of that being that pretty much, and, you know, even Ocelot's, you know, epilogue, you know, revealing that, you know, the the president knew the whole time. It's very much a game about moral gray area and power struggles, you know, and, you know, Snake is very much a, a victim of that and kind of caught in it. And I think that that's sort of how the the narrative unfolds in a way that does make you feel very lonely. Like it, pretty much everyone is betraying you. Like what Masters Liquid, <laughs> Naomi wants you dead. <laughs> like yeah, you know th- there is uh, you know Campbell regularly has things where he's you know knew more than he let on, and I think that that's one of the you know big strengths of the game is you know it, it speaks to this sort of alienation in being a complicit part in in that struggle and and realizing that you know even when there are like terrorists you're still part of something that's also quite bad <laughs> you, you know and, and I think that that if I think that went over pretty much everyone's heads at the time um and I you know I think I still think it goes over a lot of people's heads but that's just something that struck me um as something that's much more prescient these days as much more people are sort of aware of America's role in empire and you know sort of what sort of atrocities we're responsible for as a country and how the answer is most of them <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt while you were talking but when you yeah. said snake I thought you said stank at first <laughs> solid, <laughs> stank. solid stank <laughs> stank can you hear stank. me? <laughs> We've got the stank all over us. Before we get too far on this theme, I actually wanted to ask you, like, what 
Because this is the sort of thing that gets lost with Metal Gear Solid is like the moment to moment experience of actually playing it, like the the pacing of what happens, and like looking back on it, does that track to you? Do you like have a strong memory of like this happens and then this happens, or is it just kind of a yes nightmarish sort of? Because it, I remember the first time after I played it, I forgot who the bosses were for a while. <laughs> I so that I actually like have a, a note about that specifically because. What I what what really struck me about that like the actual experience of playing the game is I was I was really impressed with how lean it was, um, and I do think that now I wonder how much of this is just sort of like me playing it twenty years later and growing up on like you know Newgrounds videos where like somebody like <laughs> made flash animations of the whole game and like spoofed it like so I, I knew like sort of the basic rhythms of the game but you know there's not a lot of like dead space in the game. You're moving from one pretty memorable thing to the other. Um, you know, you're, you're going right from, you know, from the DARPA chief to meeting Merrill to, you know, Ocelot to, uh, you know, the tank fight to, uh, you know, Psychomantis to, you know, like you are going from boss to boss to boss with like, puzzles that you like figure out in the meantime there's not a lot of sort of resting on the laurels of like okay here is take out these you know nine guys in this room you know like everything is very thought out like it's like you've got to figure out that you need to smoke a cigarette to you know get get through this room without the gas killing you or it's like you need to um understand that you need chaff grenades to like get through like all of these security cameras or use your heat vision goggles to not fall on this like panel in the floor. So what I thought it was interesting is that it's more of a puzzle game to, to at least in my mind than it is like a, an actual, like, um, you, you know, like a, a shooter or anything like that. I think that's a very fair assessment because I basically think of it as you basically have, you know, for you have two or three maps that you have to stealth across in some capacity, but then you're usually encountered with a, different sort of puzzle and usually the puzzles are one off as in you might not use that mechanic again later in the game you have the nikita missile that you have to guide through the hallway to take out the circuit board you have the what's it called repelling down the comms tower that's its own puzzle there is some backtracking involved with like the pal card near the end but i do agree i think they're it's like three different modes of gameplay, I would say. There's the maps that are for stealth, there's the puzzles or set pieces, and then there's the boss battles. And some of those kind of interweave together because I think like the whole comms tower set is one giant set piece, but that involves right. the repelling scene, that involves fighting your way back up the other one with the more traditional shootout stuff, right. and then the high and D boss battles. So um, it is really a game that moves from set piece to set piece, but uh, I'm going to bring up an analogy that's, you know, pretty close to stuff I used to cover, Game of Thrones. Uh, when that show was good, it was still defined by its like bigger or high fantasy moments, but it was good because all that connective tissue of the narrative was good. Like when just two characters were talking, mm -hmm. uh, usually in like, you know, a room, but you know, this game kind of does it through Kodak. Uh, when that stuff's good, that makes all those set pieces pop more when, you know, Snake and Otacon are having meaningful conversations and then they have the big sniper wolf set piece and, you know, the emotions that's, uh, Snake and Hal are going through at the end, they mean more. And when Metal Gear is weaker, uh, as we'll get to, like, say, Metal Gear Solid 4, you'll see that they still have a lot of those bigger set pieces that you can say, oh, that was a lot of fun to play through. But then the connective tissue of the plot and the codec conversations just isn't as strong. 
And I think this game, because it is probably limited in terms of how much story it could tell and how much game could fit on this. And uh, I don't want to forget that it is two discs and there is a disc change after you defeat Sniper Wolf in the original PlayStation version. Right. But that is definitely something I think about, too, is like how much is in this game and how it actually uses the codec for pacing purposes. I remember thinking of it as a deep breath before and after, say, a big boss battle or set piece. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the thing that like the thing that like really struck it like about B is like the amount of because uh, outside of uh, Psycho Mantis and um, you know you end up talking to every one of the bosses you know multiple times. I th- I, I think um, maybe not Vulcan Raven either, but you know there is sort of a, a, a rumination like it is it is a game where people are the characters are talking to each other. You know what I'm saying? These aren't, um, the, the characterization is much, you know, it's a little more common nowadays, but you know, in 96, that was not, or 98 or whenever this came out, this was much less, you didn't see this type of stuff where it's like every boss was not just like a menacing figure. They were not a shadow, you know, and after you kill them, you know, you get pretty much every time as they're dying, you get this explanation that sort of of what it is that made them the way that they are, you know, uh, what Sniper Wolf grew up in, like, you know, the, the violence of, you know, Kurdish persecution and, you know, a Vulcan is, you know, Inuit, um, I believe. And that's, you know, had to grow up sort of relegated to reservations and, you know, God knows what other, you know, atrocities America visited on him. And, you know, Liquid Liquid is a victim too. Like Liquid was brought into the world and raised in, you know, steeped in military, militaristic or not, that he didn't want um, and made to feel, you know, inferior um, and sort of grew up with that. And I think that Snake going through this, you know, meeting all of these people, talking to all of these, these villains that are supposedly like threatening the world and realizing he's part of the US government and part of something that's visiting these you know, atrocities, you know, and sort of created all of these people, all of these, you know, different members of Foxhound in whatever way. I don't know. I, I find that that's well ahead of its time. That's something more common now. But I think that I, I think that it shows, you know, sort of what level Kojima was operating on, because that was not something that was common at all in video games back then. And it's still pretty impressive and he still pulls it off very well. Yeah, now I'm trying to reimagine what it'd be like if every Mega Man villain gave a dying monologue. Yeah. Or maybe like the Dodongo in Zelda. Uh, like, or- the, the Dodongo was actually, uh, he was actually part of a, uh, a freedom, uh, <laughs> a sort of, sort of, a, he was in the IRA. The, uh, <laughs> if you, if the Dodongo was selling you up the raw, he thought you were an orange man. <laughs> the Dodongo would have killed Margaret Thatcher if Link had not, um, you know, got in there, so. It's too bad. So I guess my other question for that was uh, much simpler. What was your favorite boss? Ooh, that's a good question. Let me see. I was, um, I, I'm not going to lie. I figured out that I, uh, I could kind of cheat on the second sniper wolf battle and I killed her with the, uh, the Nikita missiles. <laughs> Cause I just got too frustrated uh. <laughs> and I got destroyed. Um, but I let's say my, my favorite boss battle. I don't, I had a, I had a lot of fun with, um, 
with Raven at the end. Uh, yeah. Like the second Raven fight was a lot of fun for me because like at the beginning I was like, this is going to be so easy. Like he's so, and he, then he just started like moving so fast and destroying me. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. And then like, I've eventually I figured out that like you could get him with Claymores, which I had had like a shitload at that point. So yes, that was like a fun little like figuring out thing. I will say I did feel very um, accomplished like Dark Souls style when I finally beat Rex because I he killed me like twenty times so like I died so many times at Rex that was I had a very hard time um, with the last Rex fight. I don't, there's something about the the size of the arena and the size of Rex don't work together. Yeah, so they they don't. It's just not fun. It's not that fun. We talked about that. Yeah, the, and the missiles are just like the the fact that like if you don't have because I didn't have a ton of chaff grenades I had like four or something like that and the fact that you can't really evade the missiles so you've just got to sort of perfect this strafing in and out of like the gun and laser range it, it took a lot more repetitive you know trial and error I, I did feel like I you know got good at the game or good enough at the game. It wasn't like something I could just skate through, but I had a lot more fun with like Raven and like even, even Psycho Mantis. I, I had a lot more fun, um, you know, figuring that out. I think he's was my favorite boss just because of how weird he was, where it was like, yeah, this guy could uh, like, everything is like hyper realistic, except like here, this, <laughs> this guy's <is> psychic too. <laughs> like, All right, cool. I'm like I'm like waiting for him to like put like a Frankenstein or something or like a swamp monster in like uh, Metal Gear Solid 2. It's gonna rule. Well, kind of. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, just you wait. <laughs> oh my god! No way. Yes, I'm so excited. There is a, a riff on a classic movie monster in Metal Gear Solid 2. I guess. <laughs> oh my god! No way. <laughs> this is kaiju. No, no. I will say that that's. I think that's the thing he learns from one. The whole team learns. Like whoever designs the boss fight. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, it's more fun to fight one on one with these weird characters than it is to fight a Metal Gear most of the time. Yes. So the Metal Gear fights get either easier or like goofier or just like less. Because the one and two is not hard. I don't find it hard personally. No. And it is a lot more fun, I would say. And then three is is more like a on rails. It's not even really a boss fight. I would say from like a design standpoint, like I still think Metal Gear Solid is like an A plus game, especially as someone who played it in 1998. There are a few parts of the game where like the mechanics are that you basically just have to take damage. There's like literally no way to avoid it. Uh, the first shootout outside of Donald Anderson's cell is one uh, running up the comms tower with the machine guns, with the cameras. I had a real hard time with that. <laughs> and then there's no great way to avoid the like heat bursts or whatever when you're repelling down the comms tower the other way uh you kind of just i mean you can move side to side and try to jump over them but it's you know just the handling isn't there where you can be really fine touched with it so uh, that's something that they will refine in future games so that the mechanics of evasion or taking cover are there and they actually start implementing uh, playthrough bonuses for not taking any damage or not using health products. Um, there's not really any like you. D- it's more like yeah, you did it in Metal Gear Solid 2, and then in future games you actually start getting rewards and uh, equipment for you know accomplishing things like that. But that's one of the few criticisms I have, and I think the Metal Gear Rex fight is one of them, uh, where it just it, there's nothing new to it. And we talked about this last week, so I don't want to go over it, but it it doesn't feel like it was a new boss battle the way every boss battle previous to it felt like it was engaging in some new part of the game or telling something new right even like the ocelot um you know fight is like 
like what like realizing he's like bouncing bullets and like trying to like figure out the trajectory of that like on the fly while you're trying to like chase him down like even that had more i would say innovation than like the rex fight which is more just like here's projectiles like this is a mini bullet hell good luck so while we're here why don't we actually talk about uh some of the like western influences and like the cinematics in terms of uh, Kojima bringing in some of these uh, film references or films he loves and that cinematic filmmaking and how you kind of read that uh, looking at it now through the 2020 lens. That, I mean, that's literally the first thing I did when I finished the game was like, go like read uh, Kojima's Wikipedia. Cause like, I was like this guy, like definitely like, I need to know. He definitely like was like, uh, you know, basically a weeb, but for the West in Japan. Like, I feel like that must have been like his upbringing. Like, because the thing about the game that did not age well at all for me, and I was laughing uh, to the point where it came back around, and I find it kind of charming now. Is that like it's so funny how horny everyone is for Snake. <laughs> like, it's so funny. Like, like everyone, literally every like female character in the game, like has like a uh has to remark about like how hot Snake is and how like cool he is, and it just is very like it's so interesting that like. This man who wrote this game, who is like a literal auteur in like my mind, like he is such a has such a like smart sense of the world and has like a a, a real like a real ability to like parse out what people are feeling, like where alienation is coming from, like where where so where are the anxieties of you know people at points, and it's all viewed through this like hyper masculine like late eighties early nineties like action film american like bullshit that's just like where like there's a one-man army and he's going in and he's gonna kill everyone and he's cool he's the best at killing and all the ladies love him and it's just so funny that like because those are those are like kind of at odds for me but that's I, th- I think that's just sort of like what he grew up you know watching and i was not surprised to find out reading his wikipedia that he and his family watch movies like literally every night and that he's like a film school guy like that's like where that's like what he did a lot of like his teenage years and early 20s was like trying to like shoot movies and like i think that definitely shines through with how cinematic of a game you know metal gear is and how you know how much it is like scene to scene it is a very scene based game you know like there are definite like end points and cuts you know like um it is built very similar to a movie and i just think that it's it's just it's very interesting to see him kojima i just got like a perfect brain to me like it's so funny to see like just this this person who ostensibly i think would be like a genius but just grew up on our dog shit culture and our dog shit movies here in america and like as a result you know he, he now he's like a 50 year old man who tweets about like how good the lego movie is like <laughs> Like, and he could have been like a, a generational philosopher. And instead, like, he, he loves like celebrity. Like, he almost has like no taste, but at the same time is a genius. Uh, it's such a it's such a dichotomy. I love him so much. It's awesome. To be honest, that's where I feel like the most like me and Kojima are like soulmates is the fact that I I kind of have no taste. Uh, not not in that way more. It's just like. There's always something, especially with movies, that I can latch on to, to like be like, yeah, the movie's kind of whatever, but I really like this. So, you know, I enjoyed it. And I feel like 
Kojima is a simp for movies in the same way. Yes. Where he can absolutely. find something that he, he that resonates with him, even if it's not a great movie. Um, but he just I think he just generally enjoys film like he enjoys it as a medium. He enjoys the artifice of it, uh, the thought that goes into it. And that was, you know, very unique back at the time. But it even still stands out now, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I just I love that, like that there's still these like weird, you know, this weird because if I was like 12 when I had played this, I would have thought it was so cool. You know, like it is like very much like a young man. Like there is there there is the young man demographic like pandering like of like what wouldn't it be cool if you were the best soldier in the world and all the ladies thought you were hot and you were cool <laughs> like and I mean a lot of video games still do that but they just like tone it down more you know but it's just it's so funny to see such a really uniquely thoughtful game also has that in it it is. I don't really know what to make of it besides just uh, tipping my hat to Hideo Kojima, the, the, the god himself. He's basically the rawhide Kobayashi meme, but like instead of branding and cattle, he's just like, <laughs> I love Die Hard. That's uh, cinema for you, Gaijins. Like, like, it really is. He's so cool. I can't wait. I can't wait to move to New York and, and quote my favorite, uh, my favorite <laughs> Paul Verhoeven movies to all my friends. Hopefully, I can get a job in the industry. <laughs> you know, and you know that's so it's so funny because like i i like he really is i guess that's the other thing is it's like kind of looking around and seeing how starstruck he is by people who are uniquely less talented than him in my opinion like so much not his peers and yet he kind of like looks up to them like i think of him as being one of the like more smart and unique people on this planet. But like the first thing he did when he got his own, like, you know, not to say that these, you know, these people aren't interesting, but the first thing he did when he got like his own studio for like Death Stranding was be like, okay, uh, we're going to get Mads Mikkelsen and Norman Reedus and they're going to come be my friends. <laughs> uh, I'm going to like put all this music in the game from this cab driver I had in Iceland who uh, played for me. Uh, I'm going to call churches. They're going to make a song like, you know, like, and meanwhile, he's making this beautiful, beautiful game about like just, you know, the idea of like coming to terms with like death and, and all of these other things. But meanwhile, it's just like also doing all of this like weird like star fucker like things that he clearly loves. And I, I got to say, I kind of love him for that. The Rita thing is definitely like as soon as he made a, uh, his own his own independent studio that was entirely under his control. They were like, all right, what star do you want? He's like, Norman Reedus. (laughs) (laughs) we get anyone we want in the world. (laughs) Listen, we had Kiefer Sutherland. That was cool, I guess, but he's nothing compared to Norman Reedus. It rocks. I almost want to make a meme that's like, shh, let Kojima enjoy things. That's uh, that's Uh, what it is. That's what it is. Just let him enjoy everything because he literally does. Like Norman Reedus and The Walking Dead is kind of a dire TV show or whatever. And Reedus is fine in it. Like I don't have any problem with him. But of all the people you would handpick to put next to Mads Mikkelsen and get Guillermo del Toro on there, it's just, oh, Kojima. He's just... He rocks. He's, he's great. It's like, well, you you know that, like, I was reading this too, like, the um the Silent Hill remake that, like, he and Del Toro were, like, working on that got canceled. I guess Norman Reedus was supposed to be in that too. So he's he's had, yeah. like, a Norman Reedus, like, this is, like, his guy, like, his friend. Like, like, it's multiple games. It's not even just a trading. He wanted Norman Reedus for, like, every game. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I would love... 
there's not many. I would love to like just sit down and like talk with him. But I really do. I think that that is, like you said, I, I think that's charming. You know that he does have like an unabashed, you know, love for these things. As someone who can be like a little irony poisoned out of some of the stuff I like, I try and be good about that stuff. But uh, just him, the way he just genuinely loves this stuff is very refreshing. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he is a sense of personal irony is what I call that. But yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I think he, I think he likes things very earnestly. This all makes Metal Gear Solid 2 even weirder, but um, boy, what a strange game that is. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. I guess that was the next question is like, when do you plan on playing two? Because I, I think how close you plan on playing it from when you played one is a very, uh, there's a, there's a very specific reason why it'll be interesting to see when you decide that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this is the one that I wanted to get to. Like, this is kind of why I started it because I, I knew most of, you know, I wanted to actually play through it and get the experience of it, but I knew all the story beats and pretty much everything that happened in, you know, Metal Gear Solid 1 going into it. Just, you know, a lot of it just by like uh, osmosis and being, you know, pop culture, Twitter poisoned adjacent with friends who like, like, like I know the twist at the end of Metal Gear Solid 5. I know... Most of Metal Gear Solid 3, I think I'm still going to like it a lot, but like, um, you know, 2 is the one I know nothing about. And I've heard that it is some of Kojima's like genius precog abilities are, are the most on display there. So this is the one I really wanted to get to. I'm playing through Hades right now to take a break, but I'm honestly planning on starting it this weekend because I think I'm almost done. No, you're not. With Hades, but that's like the next game up. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I'm planning on starting uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 soon. I, I have to play these games at night because my PlayStation 3, I was explaining before, I need to hook it up. I have it hooked up to a projector, so I need to have dark in the room to, like, see. That's weird. And I feel, yeah, because it's fucking New York, man. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't get a TV in here. But so I just project it on the wall and I have to, uh, so it's like I feel weird playing during the day, but I might even start like tonight or something like that. Because this is the this is the one I really wanted to get to. It was kind of slow going just because with Metal Gear Solid 1, just because it's also kind of hard to go back and play a game as old as that. But this is the one I'm I'm kind of most excited about. I think that makes sense. Metal Gear Solid 1 is definitely almost a cipher for a lot of the other games, whether trying to recreate it, whether in terms of, you know, story beats or in terms of just like, like when you enter Shadow Moses and go up that elevator, you get the title card and then you actually see the base at Shadow Moses for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a scene that Kojima is going to try to recreate in at least Metal Gear Solid 3 and Metal Gear Solid 5. And 2. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm just trying to be a little mum on 2 because <laughs> um, I really want Sam to. The Sam Sheehan simulation for that episode is going to be really great. So I just want to have him be as fresh <laughs> as possible. <for> <laughs> But yeah, I think it's really great. And also, if you're living in New York, Metal Gear Solid 2, the New York themes are are pregnant. The, the, the game is pregnant with New York. It is very much about You get it. a slice. <laughs> it's me, Mario. That's, what's, that's how it goes, right? I think that's... Uh... You, it, it, it's revealed the world. The Italians are behind the sinister world order uh, controlling us all. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> you have to assassinate Andrew Cuomo. Parody in the game. <laughs> uh yeah that, that well there there is a president in the game like an actual president so i've heard this <laughs> i'm excited it's great so you know just because you know we try to pretend we're fair and even-handed is there anything about metal gear solid that you'd say 
didn't age well, that didn't work for you, even for the time that you thought maybe could have been handled a little better? Was there any, you know, anything negative you'd want to share? I, I, I try to be careful um, with this stuff, especially when playing old games, because I've been playing through a lot of them. Like, I, I tweet out some of my thoughts. I think people were pretty disappointed that I didn't like Chrono Trigger as much as, like, you know, I did because... I don't know. I don't know if you can like Chrono Trigger for the first... Because I, I played it around when I got my PS1 in, like, 2002, and I still liked it a lot. But, like, yeah, I don't know. that. That's like going back and playing Super Mario Bros. or, like, Super right. Mario World and being like, well, that's fine. Because it, it would be. Like, if you're playing yeah. Ori or Rayman or something now, or even Mario now... And you go back and play that for the first time. It's not going to be like right. It's a game that like exists in every game that's come after it, so it's kind of hard to right. Exactly. That's exactly. And and it, there was a pretty similar feeling playing Metal Gear Solid to be like you know like I'm like I'm playing this thing and I'm like like this is Dishonored. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like like this is the, the bones of Dishonored are already here. Like you know like with the, the sneaking around and the chokeouts and the you know like some of this the, the emphasis on stealth. And some of this other stuff that I was not really handled before, so I was trying to keep some of that stuff in mind. Um, that said, I got I got really frustrated in some parts. I mean, that we already talked about the Rex fight. I was like, God damn it, man! Like, I just want to be done. <laughs> um, the good news is you basically were done at that point. That's true. Yeah, I, I the thing was I. I was like trying to like leave and I was like, I was like, oh, I've got like, you know, 20 minutes left and it's like three hours later. <laughs> like, Fuck. <laughs> yeah. You, you've got a basically unlosable fight against liquid and then the cheap stuff and that's it. Yeah. And then that was, yeah, that was pretty much it. So, but um, I also, I had a really hard time with like the tower, just shooting the guns in general. Um, it was, is it, is kind of tough um, in the game. So I, I really struggled with that. That will be better. Yeah. yeah. You can go to first person in two and three, and it works. Oh, good. Good, good, good. It's indescribably better, yeah. Good. And yeah, other than that, though, I thought a lot of the, you know, there was a lot of stuff where it's like, you know, how was I supposed to know that? Like, I just die immediately, like, with, like, the, you know, uh, the mines and stuff. But I think that's part of the game. I didn't really mind that because it's like, that's sort of the game is, like, learning what to do and, like, where there's, like, bad guys and... You know, there's claymores here. Turn on your goggles. There's a trapdoor here. You know, like it's frustrating to get like killed by that stuff at the first time. But I didn't particularly mind that. It's it's really just like stuff that, just in terms of dating. You know what I'm saying? Like well, these games, like it's just so hard to aim the guns. And I found, you know, like I get what Kojima was trying to do, but like 27 floors, brother, come on, like. <laughs> <laughs> like it just, it just felt like it never ended and when i finally got to the top i was like god damn it thank you like the i wish the hind d fight was a little shorter too <laughs> but um but that that was this is i'm kind of nitpicking now i i thought it was largely i i get it you know um and i was really blown away by like the story aspect you know considering it was like made in like the clinton years by someone who yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, guessing here, but Kojima doesn't seem like he's a huge like anti-imperialist guy, <laughs> you know, like he loves Western shit. Like, so it, it's, uh, I, I'm not really sure because it's a very anti-imperial game. The question has always been how much of that is him, how much is the localization, and how much is his the, the other guy who wrote used to write the games. I didn't even know there was another guy who wrote the games. That would that would explain 
that would explain some stuff like where if Kojima is just the, the weirdo with the, like the, the things, cause there's like some very, very clear, especially in metal gear solid, like one from what I've like, it was a very anti-imperial game in like a way that I don't think would have shown through at all at the time, just given like that it, you know, Bill Clinton was still president and like nine 11 hadn't happened yet. And like, there was all sorts of, especially for like a Western audience, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm going to probably in future episodes, not here right now, talk about actually it being very strongly anti-imperialist, which I think the games are. And I think Kojima, I don't know where exactly he falls. Yeah, that's the question. I do think he is like, he's definitely a pacifist and he's definitely against, you know, nuclear proliferation. I think he sees that uh, specifically as a point of issue. But especially when we get to like, Metal Gear Solid 5, which has a whole different approach to its storytelling. I've like looked into like he's talking about like regional conflicts in sub-Saharan Africa. And when it turns out is like, yeah, what he's actually dealing with is these are proxy wars between communist and American forces that were actually happening. And he's just inserting his Metal Gear narrative as part of that whole thing. So I think he's and Metal Gear Solid 4, like all the venues or settings in that game are all places that are specifically tied to American proxy wars. I think there is something there, but I'm not saying he's anti-imperialist in the sense that, you know, Angela Davis would describe right. it, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. in one of her books. Um, I don't think he's like a non-aggression libertarian shithead kind of person either. Right. Um So I I think there is enough there where at least the work speaks for itself. And kind of going back to what you were saying a bit ago about this being wrapped up in hyper-masculine, hyper-militarized culture, I think is part of Kojima trying to... the My theory with all these games, and everyone's heard it on every episode, is that Kojima's really challenging video games as a power fantasy. And... Part of that is giving Solid Snake or your protagonist all the trappings of that power fantasy between all the girls wanting to have sex with him to him becoming a one man army and is this decorated soldier like he is a power fantasy almost in conception. And then the story is a little bit about how actually your victories are somewhat hollow or it's finally Fox dies the victor here. You know, Mm -hmm. they're the person of the year, not Solid Snake kind of thing. Uh, So you know, I think that's part of where um, he's using the trappings of imperialism and military to kind of tell his anti-themes. And, you know, I think Brian mentioned also that, you know, the games are designed for you to be the person who goes in and kills everyone and stops them. So what's Kojima saying about his role in this whole process of creating these kind of games that are so obviously well-researched with the military comings and goings? what exactly is going on that he has some kind of reverence for it. And I know Japan has its own kind of gun otaku culture. That's very different than American gun culture, so to speak. Um, Everything is different than American gun culture. Honestly, I was going to say two more things I wanted to say is I think it's interesting how the anti-imperialist stuff kind of leaks into the rest of the series because um, revenge is explicitly about like the villains of that game are, an American private military company, like the American PMC company, and uh, a senator, a sitting U.S. senator, um, and and they are explicitly trying to create the forever war, and that's like the that's what you have to stop in the game. But then the other thing is, I think um, it's important that I think when we talk about the, this game as a power fantasy and the way that Sam was saying that, like it's kind of funny that everyone wants to everyone wants to bang snake. It's also this game 
may not have been the first, but it's certainly one of the first, the earliest examples of the the player character being a distinct character from you. And like Snake mm. has such a distinct character. Yes. That like it's very unlikely that anyone playing that game would be like, yeah, I I relate with this guy. Uh as that's very different from Link, Gordon Freeman. Yes. Even even to an extent, uh what's it? Um fucking Garrett from Thief who was coming out at the time. Although he had vo- he had voice lines as all, as well. But like at that stage in game development, the, the player character is either a cipher for the player or they were like Sonic. They were like a cool guy. And so Snake being very different, like and, and that leaving room for the player, you're like you yourself are a character in the game in a way. And that that's very different. And I think that's where a lot of the stuff that really attracted people to the game comes from. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I didn't I didn't even think about that. That the, like you don't even that there's not really even been you know that Snake is at the end of the day like uh, a guy. You know what I'm saying? He has is there there's Snake's thoughts and there's your thoughts. You know what I'm saying? Like you're you're someone who's just kind of along for the ride, even though you're playing the game. You're still kind of just guiding this man, Solid Snake, who is someone who's different from you and that's not necessarily the lines are much more blurred in like earlier more popular games like there's that's not uh i'm trying to think of even like when the next time i can think of like that happening mario does not have an interior life yeah there's no link link you can literally change link's name in all of the games to like your name uh his name is zelda or 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 fuck yeah fuck <laughs> yeah his name is fuck um like yeah, there's not even like i'm i'm trying to like even Think back. I don't want to say that they they didn't exist, but especially voice characters like that's what really helped them stand out. Right. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. So, well, especially because the voice acting is so imperative to this like this game. Like I I, I think it does give it a veneer of uh you know reality because even though you know it's these polygon models that like everyone looks like the golden eye like shaded face you know everyone looks like they're they've been blurred out for like an mtv episode of like next that's still there's a there's a humanity that works within the game that hasn't been seen before because someone is talking you know like when you're doing the codex stuff mm-hmm. you know there's you're, you're hearing someone it's not like like they sort of did this in um first resident evil like bioshock but they had to actually like film weird like movies <laughs> where it's like everyone's dressed up weird and like the voice acting's like terrible it's like and Jill, the master of lockpicking, like the localization was not great. And I think that, you know, combining, I think another strong part of, you know, Metal Gear Solid, and I think what's really helped other franchises make the leap overseas too, is strong localization is such an uh, under, it's not respected as much as it, you know, um, should be. Like it, I can think of the Yakuza games in particular have extremely good localization, Um for like coming over to the Western market. And I think that that's something else that really sets, you know, Metal Gear Solid apart is it never really, it doesn't feel stilted and weird with like the, you know, the way with the translation, which is not, um, that's something that happened a lot back then. Like a lot of those old PlayStation games that are, you know, came overseas and were localized. There's a lot of translation errors and localization errors where things, this guy are sick. Yeah, exactly. Like, like all your base are belong to us. Like there's the, the memes of, of, you know, the, this, these, these things. And that you never felt that in, um, you know, Metal Gear Solid either. Yeah. The Metal Gear Solid localization is actually somewhat a famous story within, I guess, people who know 
in Jeremy Blaustein is the one who did most of the localization here. And apparently he took some liberties or added some things. Um, it's possible that he's the one who added OSP for procurement on site. Uh, that acronym might have been something he lifted. And then Kojima, is the story is that he wasn't super happy with this. And a lot of this might be apocryphal or the urban legend. Um but, you know, he did end up carrying that OSP forward into future games. And then the uh, person who localized MGS2 famously did not like the script for MGS2. And people kind of complained the writing fell off a little bit in the second. And then MGS4 had all sorts of localization issues where lines from Naomi wouldn't even make sense um, when translated from the, what the Japanese was to what the English was. So um, I do think MGS 1998 was the best localized of the series. And it definitely feels right because... There's definitely voice acting, and that was a very much not necessarily a first, but one of the first on consoles. But it wasn't just voice in these clear cinematic scenes that are, you know, void of gameplay. There was also dialogue, you know, through the codec, through the cinematics. And then, you know, it's very little, but also just in the gameplay with the guards, like, whose footsteps are these? Whose footsteps are these? What was that noise? Yeah. You start seeing the integration of voice into all aspects of it, which is different than when voice is just relegated to a non-gameplay part of a game. Um, it, and I think just overall, you know, the characters, like the non-playable characters, the soldiers behave within the same systems and are bound to the same physics and everything that Solid Snake is. So you see them get tired. You see them get yawn and stretch. Uh, you know, they feel like real people. They aren't just, yes. you know, the ghosts on a Pac-Man board. And that helps the whole immersion of everything. Yeah. No, th- while you were saying that, I, I just remind, reminded me of another thing I wanted to point out, too, that is, is, you know, building on that point about them feeling like real guys. It's very interesting that what Liquid is looking for is you know, boss's DNA to to cure the genome soldiers. Like that gives the game like that's like almost a, like a little bit of a throwaway thing like in the game like it's really not that important to like the bottom line of the story that much in terms of like Metal Gear and the codes and the drama, but I think it helps you know enrich that the fact that yeah you know, the genome soldiers are dudes like they're people like it'd be so easy to be like I don't care if every genome soldier dies as long as we get our eight billion dollars or you know whatever that you know that's like what most villains would say but. It's like these guys are sick and like, I mean, a part of it is like, you know, I guess resources and liquid trying to like, you know, keep his army healthy, but it makes it feel more real that there's like a logistical problem here. Like it's very military that like, you know, guys, guys get sick and, you know, this is something that needs to like get handled that it makes, you know, further, even further makes the genome soldiers feel like real people with real personnel problems that you know a general like liquid or whoever needs to manage yeah i think kojima depicts uh soldiers generally as pitiable figures uh it's not dissimilar to solid snake giving all the bosses a foxhound like that moment of grace before they die uh there seems to be and especially through all the games a sense of you know taking care of the soldier because the states and the governments will not they will actively use abuse you and if you come back uh, with enough of your limbs intact, they will still find ways to piss on your memory or not give you, you know, you're out there being the instruments of imperialism. And then you're just basically left out to dry after that. And I think we do see solid and liquid take it in different ways, but we see still see that. And I think part of that comes from Big Boss. And that's one thing that I'll be interested for you as you go on your Metal Gear journey is 
when I played it in 1998 and somewhat what you're playing now, uh, the big boss mentions all over this game, it just feels like, oh, I know that's just a holdover from these MSX era games. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's so critical here. And then you play through all the rest of the series and then come back to this. And then, you know, like Brian joked in the previous episode, the shadow of Moses, Moses being big boss in here, kind of you really feel it. You see that these aren't just throwaway lines about Big Boss or Snake reminding them of Big Boss, but you can see how the stories that he'll tell in future games track back to this one. And that was kind of what I mentioned earlier about how this game is kind of a cipher for the series in a lot of ways. Um, it acts as a nexus point, so to speak. <laughs> nice to meet you, Snake. It's an honor to speak to a, a living legend like yourself. So that's mission complete for us this episode. Uh, thank you, Sam, for joining us. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find you if you want to be found? Uh, yeah, no, I have a, a, a new account. Uh, nice Sheehan. So nice, like the opposite of not nice. And uh, Sheehan, my last name is H-E-E-H-A-N. Uh, I just got suspended for uh, posting a lot of TikToks and getting uh, DMCA violations. So lost all my followers. Got to start from the bottom again. But uh, yeah, I, I tweet a lot about video games and, uh, you know, the NBA and stuff like that. So that that sounds interesting to you. I'm pretty sure this is a giant conspiracy to make you lose all your followers right before you're going to promote our podcast on your feed. Yes. Uh, I think <laughs> it's possible that the Lali Lalo Lu might be behind this, but uh, we'll get to that later. No, this is the Illuminati. The <laughs> Patriots. The NWO didn't want this important podcast to reach the, my uh, four thousand followers, so now it's only uh, seven hundred. It's only it's only hitting a select few. Uh, the NWO, in terms of like Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Hulk Hogan, is that what we're talking about here? That's who it is. Yes, exactly. They're members of the Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> the Patriots. Boom. Uh, oh, well, thank you very much, Sam. This was oh, a delight, was and so we really fun. appreciated your. Oh, I appreciate input, it. Thanks, so. guys. Thanks so much for having me on. As always, our frequency is podcastsansfrontieris at gmail.com and podsansfront on twitter.com and instagram.com. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm also Sil Bryan, also known as Cosmos. Goodbye. Credit to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, subscribe, share, retweet, post on your favorite podcast application and social media feeds. Until next time, remember, the best is yet to come.
Mei-Ling saying, like, I can't believe I'm talking to the world-famous Solid Snake is probably, like, I, I, I belly laughed. Like, there's so many of those, like, lines. That's the one that I, I'm always going to remember, though, is, um, is that one. I, I just love it because it's it's so – it goes against, like, you have this beautiful, you know, explanation from, uh, you know, Naomi and Frank and, like, you know, regret and, like, you know – what it is to like kill someone and like what that like the pain that visits on someone and earlier on in that game you've just got like Mei Ling being like wow I'm horny for you <laughs> like it, it, it rocks it's so cool 